in the hobby. It's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking that we could pull, I don't know, Hall of Famer. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com. The only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy slab packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. There is nothing more fun than opening an Arena Club slab pack. I mean, it is so much better than any mystery pack that I've ever purchased because there is a focus on transparency. There is a display of available cards. There are hit rates you can get. When you're graded, you're given a rationale. It is the marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, and displaying. Arena Club Slab Packs are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your pulls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. You can have them officially graded by Arena Club. The Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent, with a full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. Whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform you have to check out. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash badmoney. Wow, that's a crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack, that's $40 right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash badmoney for 10% off your first purchase. I love to track progress. As you guys know from listening to this show, I'm constantly tracking my progress. What have we done so far in 2024? And spring is in full bloom. Are your finances blooming too? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans like for a car or a home. You can use it everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. That's right, you can build your credit using your own money. Get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. With a qualifying direct deposit, you can get access to your money sooner. Fee-free overdraft with SpotMe. Overdraft up to $200 without fees with SpotMe when you set up a qualified direct deposit. Just set up a qualifying direct deposit, sign up for SpotMe, and Chime will spot you up to your limit when you make a credit card purchase or cash withdrawal that exceeds your balance. Access 60,000 plus fee-free ATMs. That's more than the top three national banks combined. Easily find one near you with the Chime app. Send and receive money. Use Chime to pay anyone, Chime members or not, and cash out your money fee-free. With Chime's secure credit card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started at Chime.com slash bad money. That's Chime.com slash bad money. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Hoorah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn, and this is my podcast, Bad With Money, a show about finances and feelings. This episode will be about the economics of eating disorders. If this topic is sensitive for you, please don't listen or take care while listening. 
On June 2nd, 2021, I received this email. Hi, Gabby. I've been a longtime fan of yours since the BuzzFeed days and love the inclusive approach to money and finances you take on your podcast. I have recently begun treatment for an eating disorder, and as I have started recovery, I am realizing how much my eating disorder has taken from me. A lot of times people talk about the physical health risks of eating disorders or the emotional mental trauma, but if I'm being honest with myself, financial stability is one of the things that my eating disorder has impacted the most. Between dropping extreme amounts of money during binging episodes, eating and drinking, and having to constantly buy new clothes because my size fluctuates multiple times a year, major fluctuations like size 8 to size 16 and back, or because my body dysmorphia makes me too afraid to return clothes that don't fit because what if the salesperson knows I have an eating disorder? I was wondering if it would be possible for you to discuss this on your show, as I haven't heard anyone, even in the eating disorder spaces, talk about the financial burden eating disorders can cause and how to gain control over finances while in recovery. I hope all is well with you, and I truly cannot tell you how important your podcast and the advice in it has been to me in the last couple months. Thank you for taking the time to read this. Smiley face. Sincerely, Anonymous. I couldn't think of a clever name. I had truly never even considered this as a topic until I got this email, and then suddenly it seemed so obvious. That's what's so insidious about money issues. They can show up in the cracks of basically every aspect of a person's life, especially mental health, in ways someone outside of that experience would never consider. My relationship to eating and to my own body are not what I'd call good. I have a very distinct physical memory of rolling onto my side in bed in the fifth grade and suddenly noticing that my stomach protruded. I was appalled. I pressed my hand into it and tried to push it back in. Nope, that was just my stomach. Bad news. Sometime soon after that, I shoplifted diet pills from the drugstore. They were green tea flavored. One, I couldn't afford them otherwise. Two, I didn't want the cashier to look at me askew. And three, I didn't want my parents to find out. I kept them in my backpack. I'm not going to get into much more because I think it's already too relatable of a topic and too prevalent and too misrepresented. So much so that I wrote a male character with bulimia into a project of mine from last year because I'd never seen one portrayed without mocking. And I still don't think I have a great handle on my eating and it can still become kind of disordered. So there's two different aspects to a bad with money episode about the cost of eating disorders. One, as Anonymous so beautifully chronicled, is the personal cost. And that we're going to get into in a very vulnerable conversation with my friend Stephanie Beatriz. You might know Stephanie from shows like Brooklyn Nine-Nine and movies like In the Heights. Steph graciously agreed to talk to me about her own very personal experiences with disordered eating. The other aspect is the economic cost. That's right. There exists research into this very specific topic. And you all know that I love research into a very specific topic. First, in this episode, we're going to speak to Dr. S. Bryn Austin, Harvard professor, director of Striped, Strategic Talking Initiative for the Prevention of Eating Disorders, and member of the expert advisory panel for the June 2020 paper, The Social and Economic Cost of Eating Disorders. The numbers are staggering, and this topic needs more attention and funding badly. Dr. Austin was such a smart and thought-provoking interview, so let's get into it. I'm a professor and public health researcher at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health and Boston Children's Hospital, and I'm also the founding director of STRIPED, the strategic training initiative for the prevention of eating disorders. 
Striped is a research and training program based at the Harvard Chan School and Boston Children's Hospital. We bring together experts in eating disorders and public health, adolescent preventive medicine, health law, policy economics, and many other disciplines to create a public health incubator, a place where collaborations are cross-cutting and we can develop innovative approaches to eating disorders prevention. So what made you want to study eating disorders? I got here through my own journey in LGBTQ and AIDS activism in the early days of the AIDS epidemic, and also through majoring in feminist and anti-racism studies and in college many years ago, and witnessing how friends and classmates were affected and derailed by what I realize now were likely eating disorders, but at the time we had no language for. By the time I moved into the field of public health from my first career in journalism in the 1990s, the so-called war on obesity was at full tilt and medical and public health communications and mainstream media were replete with frightening warnings and stern admonitions about the country's increasing weight. And what the medical and public health communities were not taking into account was that these kinds of communications and programs and policies in their so-called war on obesity were not entering the American consciousness as if on a blank slate. Instead, this war was like a tanker of gasoline on an already raging wildfire of weight stigma, misogynist and racist body shaming and structural sizeism. That is the oppression of people living in larger bodies through laws, policies, economic penalties, and more. Now, what better conditions to catapult the dieting industry into a multi-billion dollar juggernaut that it is today? Mind you, this industry is very effective at generating revenue. I know your show is about money, but highly ineffective at reducing weight. What are the different types of eating disorders and like the misconceptions, you know, because I think we only see sort of very thin white women in media, you know? Yeah, there are a lot of misconceptions out there. So I'll start with the basics of what eating disorders are. They're a group of illnesses that vary a lot, but share in common that they can be extremely debilitating and even deadly. Most listeners have probably heard of anorexia nervosa, which always involves severe restriction of food intake, and bulimia nervosa, which includes both binge eating, so eating a lot in a way that feels out of control, and some other way of compensating for the food that they've eaten. These types of eating disorders are very serious and most widely known and studied. However, they are not the most common binge eating disorder and another sort of catch-all diagnosis inaptly called Other Specified Feeding or Eating Disorder, or OSFED, are much, much more common. And these types of eating disorders are also very serious and can be life-threatening. If we counted up all the people with any of these four types of eating disorders in one year in the US, anorexia would make up only 7% of all of those people. Bulimia would make up 11%, whereas binge eating disorder would make up 37% of those people, and OSFED 44% or close to half. So binge eating disorder and OSFED are actually far, far more common. There's a few other types of eating disorders that are less common, and I want to mention just one called Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, or ARFID. And this is different from other eating disorders in that this one is seen 
most often in kids who are neurodivergent, such as on the autism spectrum, or conditions that can make them very anxious about the sensory aspects of foods. So that's eating disorders in a nutshell. The diet culture and wellness culture aspect of all of it, while you were talking, I kept thinking about orthorexia, which is like you think you're being very healthy and you want to work out all the time and all this. How much is the diet culture industry making off of us and how much is the wellness culture industry making off of us in terms of like eating restriction? The dieting culture, the wellness culture, which is really just a variant of dieting culture, billions and billions of dollars are made every year cashing in on people's fears about health issues, the fears about COVID, and they have been doing this for a long time, cashing in on weight stigma and fat shaming. And they've done absolutely nothing for public health or to improve people's health. When you see people being like, you've got to work out, you got to drink celery juice, you got to do cleanses, is that like so frustrating because it's like the opposite of what the human body needs? I'm just guessing. Those industries are just one lie after another. It's a snake oil industry that's hardly regulated. When they're telling you you need to drink celery juice or more likely when they're telling you you need to buy their dietary supplements to either supposedly boost your immune system, protect yourself from COVID, lose weight, keep up with your lovers and all kinds of things they promise. It is a bogus industry, but the regulation is so weak Thanks to the industries flooding Congress with lobbying dollars in the 1990s, this is definitely an issue we've got to get better under control and better regulation. So what was the main finding from the report that you helped facilitate or that they thanked you in, which I found and I read and I was like riveted by, which is called the Economic Costs of Eating Disorders? My organization, Striped, worked closely with the Academy for Eating Disorders and Deloitte Access Economics to carry out what is the most comprehensive report to date mm -hmm. of the cost of eating disorders to the U.S. economy. Simply put, eating disorders in the United States are common, deadly, and expensive. Eating disorders are much more common than most people realize and affect people of all genders, all race ethnicity groups, all sexual orientations, body sizes, ages, nearly 30 million Americans or almost 10% of our population will have an eating disorder at some point in their lifetime. Nearly 2 million children alive today will have an eating disorder before they're age 20 years old. Eating disorders are among the most deadly mental health condition, killing over 10,000 Americans every year Every 52 minutes, someone's loved one needlessly dies from this preventable and treatable condition. A 16-year-old with anorexia nervosa has 10 times the risk of dying compared to a healthy peer. And the cost of eating disorders is exorbitant to the U.S. economy. Eating disorders are expensive, costing the U.S. economy almost $65 billion each year. The majority of people affected by eating disorders are in the prime of their working years, which intensifies the impact on the economy. Eating disorders cost individuals and loved ones nearly $24 billion per year, and loved ones provide on average six full-time weeks of informal, unpaid 
care each year because of holes in our healthcare system. Wow. So what do you mean by that? When someone develops an eating disorder, it can become life-threatening. It can be very difficult for them to be able to engage with work or school to even to feed themselves in a way to keep themselves healthy. That puts the burden on families and loved ones, especially if it's a child, to try to get that person into care. But the care can't all happen in a hospital or in the doctor's office, it's a 24-hour kind of experience of making sure that young people will have the care they need to recover. We found that with serious eating disorders, loved ones are providing on average six full-time weeks of informal unpaid care. That means this is what they're doing in addition to their full-time job because they want to make sure they can help their loved one get back full health and get back engaged in school or work. There's a number of places where a healthcare system breaks down, and this is one of them, by expecting families to be able to carry all of this responsibility. What happens if you go inpatient, or what does it cost you know, to go inpatient for disordered eating? Well, the healthcare costs can be enormous, but when you're talking about the whole economy, the costs are not as much as the costs we lose through productivity losses, or that is workplace losses. Right. With healthcare costs, we see that as including hospitalization, residential care, outpatient care, primary care. So when we're looking at from a, a health system perspective, the total cost of eating disorders is about four point six billion per year. Wow. So this is not the majority of the cost, but it's important to note how much individuals are having to pick up care they need that's not covered. So the average cost per person was highest for individuals with anorexia nervosa, over $2,600 per year for an individual. This is a cost for healthcare, followed by bulimia nervosa, which is around $1,300 a year. This is on average. If somebody's in a very severe state, it's going to be a lot more than that. Three quarters of the health system costs are actually due to outpatient and primary care, which is where we'd like more people to be able to be treated. And certainly if we can catch people early before they've gotten too sick or too disabled by their eating disorder, we could treat more people outpatient and primary care. That's where actually more of the health system's costs are showing up when you're thinking about the whole economy as opposed to individuals. Yeah, I was going to ask, so in terms of the economy, what are the costs for the hospital system? The costs for the, the healthcare system are $4.6 billion per year, and that's out of the $65 billion for the total hit on the U.S. economy. My producer said you listened to the episode with Lee Badgett in which, you know, we talk about homophobia and transphobia being loss of productivity and, and having economic costs. And so it's interesting to talk about eating disorders in this sort of like productivity culture way. But how does studying it in this manner affect public policy or why is it important? We undertook this study because no comprehensive study had been done in the U.S. before, but we knew that policymakers need to see the economic data. Those of us working in the field, clinicians, families who have lived with an eating disorder, they know that economic costs can be enormous for individuals, families, but we didn't have all the numbers in front of us. We undertook this study so that we could answer that question. When we are sitting with lawmakers and saying we need more access to care, we need better insurance coverage, we need more research. We needed the numbers to do that. So the eating disorders, our total cost for the U.S. economy is 65 
billion dollars, people living with eating disorders and their loved ones are bearing the largest portion of those costs at 23.5 billion or over 36% of the total costs are being borne specifically by those folks with eating disorders and their loved ones. Employers and government each cover about a quarter or a third of these costs. I want to make sure to put these numbers in context. I'd like to compare them to some other health conditions that your listeners are going to be familiar with and conditions that our society already considers important. So for instance, a recent study done for Parkinson's disease, $54 billion per year. Now we know Parkinson's is very serious, but it actually costs less to the economy than eating disorders. Another area that's gotten a lot of research is schizophrenia, extremely serious psychiatric illness. The range of the cost to the economy run from around $27 billion to $111 billion, different studies. Our estimate for eating disorders at $65 billion falls right in the middle of that. Despite the enormous costs of eating disorders to individuals and families, employers, and society, our government funding for research lags woefully behind other conditions. In 2017, the federal government's leading health research agency, the National Institutes of Health, funded research on Alzheimer's disease at roughly $239 per affected person in the country. They funded research on autism, vitally needed research, at $109 per affected person with autism. Schizophrenia, they funded less, but funded $69 per affected person with schizophrenia. With eating disorders, however, the National Institutes of Health committed only a single dollar to research per affected person with an eating disorder. A single dollar. Clearly, the research funding is woefully below what is going to be needed to make a change in this deadly illness. Is it because they think it's like, oh, well, eating disorder, like you did this to yourself and it's not that serious? One of the stereotypes about eating disorders is this idea, yes, that people do it to themselves and they could just choose to get better. It could not be farther from the truth. This is a serious mental illness and it needs to be treated like one and responded to by our government through public health, medicine, and research dollars. Why are our people of color and specifically black people less likely to receive proper eating disorder diagnoses? Yeah, it's well documented that eating disorder symptoms are routinely missed by healthcare providers in males and communities of color and people of higher weight who have eating disorders. So why is this happening? Very, very few medical schools or nursing schools include eating disorders as a meaningful part of the training they provide. That means that every year, a whole new cohort of doctors and nurses are entering our country's healthcare workforce, knowing no more about eating disorders than the distorted misinformation and fictions they picked up as kids from People Magazine or on TV. That's who our doctors and nurses are when it comes to knowing eating disorders. In reality, we're seeing higher rates of eating disorders in some communities marginalized by structural racism, economic exploitation, and other structural oppressions related to sexual orientation, gender identity, body size, and other identity groups. For instance, we have known for many years, close to two decades really, that boys of color have higher rates of eating disorder symptoms than white boys. But we could probably count on one hand how many pediatricians know this or how many school counselors know this. What we're doing as a nation for these boys or for any children struggling with body image pressures, almost nothing for them as a nation. 
And our society's response, by and large, has been to feed the beast of the snake oil diet pill industry, selling over-the-counter, with no age restrictions whatsoever, all manner of pills, potions, and powders that are not medically recommended or effective, but can be deadly dangerous. What are the potential benefits of early intervention and what do you mean by early intervention? Our report on the social and economic costs of eating disorders is the most comprehensive one today and it casts in high relief the depth and breadth of the impact of eating disorders and the urgency for the need for more resources devoted to prevention and early intervention. Our new study is on the cost and benefits of prevention early intervention. So exactly what you're asking about. And with this, I can tell you in broad strokes, we're using state-of-the-art methods for comparing the relative potential costs and benefits of different approaches to eating disorders prevention and early intervention. And these are particularly the kind of approaches coming from public health to create healthier environments for young people, not just to make young people more resilient to this toxic environment that they're living in around body image, but actually to change that environment. So we've carried out using state-of-the-art methods, a study to compare what would it cost and how much could we save and lives save too if we were to put some of these approaches into place. And basically what we found is that all of the methods, and some of them are programs in schools, some of them are changing the consumer marketplace. I mentioned the -the over-the-counter diet pills. Some of them are screening, very early screening. All of them would be cost-saving if we can move policymakers and healthcare systems forward on addressing these kinds of issues. All of them would give us an improvement over the status quo today and how we manage eating disorders. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I recommend to everyone to read The Economic Cost of Eating Disorders. It's a fascinating read. Where can people find out more about you and your research and help if they want to help? I'd encourage listeners to find us easily online. You can just Google Harvard Striped and you'll find us. And you can check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and LinkedIn. Our report on the social and economic costs of eating disorders in the U.S. is available for free for anyone who wants to read the whole 100 pages. But if you maybe don't have time to read the entire report, we also... (laughs) Okay, we get it. I had a lot of time to read 100 pages. (laughs) But we do have a one-page infographic that's right there Mm -hmm. next to the report on our website. One-page infographic. You'll get everything you need to know, the key highlights. So check it out. Next, we're going to get vulnerable with my very dear friend, Stephanie Beatrice, who in 2017 wrote a piece for InStyle magazine exposing her own struggle with disordered eating, a piece that helped a lot of people and shed light on the behind the scenes of a quote unquote glamorous life. My name is Stephanie Beatrice. I'm an actor. You may know me from playing Rosa Diaz on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I also do a bunch of voiceovers. I was recently in In the Heights. I played Carla. And this fall, my voice will be the voice of Mirabel Madrigal in the new Disney film Encanto. Beautiful. In 2017, you wrote this article about disordered eating that really like resonated with a lot of people. So what made you want to write that article? Well, I had gotten to a place where I could actually like talk about it more openly and accept that part of myself that I was sort of moving through struggling with. And it felt like it had been 
such an embarrassing and shameful thing for so long. And also that it was like, quote unquote, normal, like, oh, everybody, everyone that's in your industry is like dealing with this and you just have to kind of like do it. And I didn't want that to be the reality that I was like living in anymore. And I thought, well, I feel this way. I bet a bunch of other people do too. And I just kept having these conversations with people, primarily women that were feeling like they were under an immense amount of pressure to create or maintain some type of body type that was really small, much smaller than maybe they were naturally supposed to be. And a lot of that connected with Mm -hmm. what I call disordered eating. Because like sometimes eating disorders, disordered eating, it sounds like, well, I don't have anorexia. Like I'm not bulimic. I don't throw up. Like, you know, like – or I'm too big to be anorexic, which is like – Yeah. Are you a doctor? Like do you know? (laughs) Like calling it disordered eating felt like a better way to sort of have a phrase that felt like an umbrella that a lot of people might find themselves under and a way to talk about it that didn't scare people off. At the height of you trying to maintain a certain look or weight, like in terms of time as money, but also in general, money-wise, I mean, how much do you think that you, you spent on all of that? You know what's crazy is, so my disordered eating manifested itself as restricting food and then binging. What would happen for me in a restrictive and binging cycle is that essentially I would kind of save money for a while because I wasn't eating very much. Mm -hmm. The problem is that your body realizes that it's really hungry and essentially starving. And so there's a buildup. You know, just like anything else, if you repress your anger, you're going to have an explosion. You know, if you repress your sexuality, some part of you is going to come out in a way that maybe you didn't want that to happen. And mine was, mine manifested in like, I would put away so much food over a weekend. I would just self-isolate and I'd be like, okay, what are we doing this weekend? We're ordering this and then we're ordering this and then we're ordering this and we're going to watch TV the whole time. We're not going to pick up our phone. We're not going to text anybody back. We're going to isolate so that I can continue this behavior that I know is not good for me. And sometimes that would also mean for me drinking and over drinking sometimes because that is a way to deal with the thing that you know you're doing that you don't really like about yourself. You know, like, of course, I'm sure I spent more than I would have if I had just eaten out every night over the course of a week. Even if I had given myself that sort of gift of like, what new restaurant am I going to try tonight? I would have ended up spending less money than a two-day binge. When you engage in behavior like that, Mm -hmm. you don't want to look at it. So like I have no idea how much I must have spent. I I just don't know because I didn't want to look. I didn't want to look at the charges. I didn't want to think about it. I just wanted to like hit the button on the app and then that be done with it and have have it be like pretend money that didn't exist, which is not true. Right. I mean, I've definitely like had back and forth disordered eating. And I always think about how I'd be like, okay, try not to eat so much today. And then by the end of the day, I'm like working on my book or whatever I'm working on and I'm exhausted. Mm -hmm. To me, I also think of it as like losing time. Like sometimes I'd be like, you slept all day. Congratulations. You didn't eat anything. You also didn't do anything. Do anything. You like 
Right. Because your body was exhausted. Exactly. So it felt like such a trade-off, not to be super capitalist about it. If you want to sleep all day, amazing. But you should also eat food. Uh, (laughs) Sure. But I mean, like, you can say work or you can say, like... Enjoying life. I slept all day and didn't engage Mm -hmm. with my life or my friends or my partner Mm -hmm. or the art that I like to make or the art that I want to consume. I didn't engage with any of it Mm -hmm. because I didn't have any energy because I didn't choose to feed. Right. I was driving on an empty tank. So stupid. Did you ever do any, like, cleanses or, like, were you kind of a – were you a person who was kind of always looking for, like, the wellness aspect? Yeah. I think a lot of disordered eating can hide under this wellness label that's total bullshit because wellness should mean freedom. Like, that's essentially what it should mean, you know, freedom for your body, freedom for your mind, your soul. It should mean that, like, all of those things are working together and what can happen sometimes during – some very restrictive diets, cleanses and stuff is that you don't have that freedom. You're actually like super restricted during that time. And I'm all for like, if you want to take a break from solid food and you just kind of want to do it, like, okay, fine, go for it. Mm-hmm. You'll be hungry. Like, <laughs> You will poop your pants, but you know what? Enjoy. <laughs> you will poop your pants. You will be hungry because I've done it. I've done like juice cleanses and stuff and like <gasps> – You know, it can be kind of like interesting, challenging, like, let's see if I can do this for myself, you know, like, let's see if I can. Yeah. But as I've moved through that stuff, it's like, it works better for me if I'm like, if I say to myself, I'm not really getting a lot of vegetables lately, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to add like two juices. I'm going to try to add two juices a day to what I'm eating Mm -hmm. and see how that makes me feel. And oh, consequently, like- It gives me like more energy and also I feel like my skin looks better because I'm getting greens in that I wasn't getting last week, you know? Yeah. And addition, and addition. Yeah. Yeah. There's also been times like where, and I think this is a good thing to do. I mean, I struggle a lot with acne and skin stuff. And there have been times where I try like eliminating certain foods for a certain amount of Mm -hmm. time to see, you know, like, is this really like – you know how people say like, oh, if you get rid of dairy, if you get rid of yeah. this, if you get rid of that. But then at the same time, there's like these dumbass tests that are like, spend your money on this like little test that'll tell you, you know, like whether or not, you know, almonds are in your highest sensitivity <laughs> list, which is like, are you fucking kidding right now? Like only a doctor can tell you that. Steph, it's eggs every time. It's eggs every time. Every person I've ever talked to who's done it. Somehow can't eat eggs. Sure, sure. Eggs. Yeah, I guess they're whatever. But okay, so how does compulsive working out, going to the gym and going to trainer and all that stuff, I mean, how does that like factor in? There's no solve. I mean, I guess we're all looking for this like, what is the thing that's going to solve all my problems? And it's not weighing X amount of pounds. Exactly. The thing that's a bummer is like people will say, oh, well, you have access to all this stuff. And like, you're lucky. It's like, well, first of all, I worked fucking hard to get access to be able to have a health coach that I work with. And I do work with a health coach. Like, yeah, I work with one I have for years and years. Yeah. All of it is like how you are looking at it. Because like when I lived in New York, I was in a relationship where my partner was like, I will pay for your gym membership. I will pay. You don't have to worry about it at all. Okay. At the time, I was like, that's such a nice gift. You know, that's such a nice thing for me to not have to worry about because gyms are expensive, in New- especially in New York. Mm-hmm. Did that take any like actual stress away from my life? No. 
because what it meant to me was now you have the thing that you said you wanted. And so now you have to execute. Yeah. So it was like, you have to go to the gym all the time. You have to be there every day. You have to like work even harder than you thought you did. You have to take this class and then also do cardio or whatever. I was like driving myself insane trying to go all the time. Yeah. I was like living in the greatest city. Did I enjoy my life during that year living in New York City when I was like in my 20s? No. Because I was at the gym all the time. Yeah. So here's the question. I think we've talked about this a little bit like as friends. You're like a Shakespeare trained actress. Like you are like a very good actress. Thank you. And the idea that a huge percentage of that is be skinnier than this other girl at the audition <laughs> or like get a health coach or go to the gym. Trash. How much of being an actress is just spending on your body? It depends on the actor. You know, it really depends on the actor. Yeah. For some people, their way of combating the unknowns in this particular industry is to be able to control whatever they can. And for some people, that control is the size of their thighs and whether or not their abs show and whether or not they have cellulite and whether or not their top lip looks a certain way. I try not to judge that because it's so uncontrollable. I mean, like you can even book, you can book like your dream role and then start shooting and the executives be like, "Mm, no, it can be gone. You know, like, yep. Happens all the time. People don't realize that. They can just take it away after you've booked it. It happens all the time. After you've done it. Yes. After everyone's talked about it, after everyone knows you're doing it, it could dis- it could disappear. There's a lot of feeling like I have no I have no say. What do I do? What do I do? I know. I know what I can do. I can not eat eggs. I can work out X amount of times a day. Mm-hmm. It is an investment. Like yourself is part of your instrument. It's like, you're not going to buy, I just looked over at my dusty ass ukulele, but like, <laughs> you're not going to, like if you're a professional ukulele player, you're going to spend money on your instrument because you know yeah. that if you have the best of the best, you're probably going to book more gigs because you're going to sound better. And so like, if you know that you're taking care of this thing in all the possible ways that you can, then you're probably going to feel better when you walk into a room and give an audition. You're not going to be self-obsessed. You know what I mean? All of this stuff is so costly. And, you know, it's that like horrible thing of like, oh, you're not ugly. You're just poor, which is like (laughs) the Kardashians. That's stupid meme. Yeah. But you wrote about this too a little bit about like influencers encouraging people to to spend money on weight loss. And I think you posted with the Kardashians. I was doing research on yeah. you. And like when there was that thing where Kendall was like, Kim, you look so skinny. You look like you barely eat. And Kim was like, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And you were like posting about that. Mm-hmm. What like set you off about that? And how do these influencers like sell this stuff? I'm going to compare it to something that is very serious, but I think when you are around a conversation in which casual sexism is happening or casual homophobia or casual racism, it's so ugly that it's casual and that it's normal. It's so deeply ugly. And that is what was happening in that conversation. You look so skinny. You look like you've barely eaten. Casual body hatred, casual 
sort of reiterating to each other themselves that their value is only in equal measure to the lack of space that they take up. The lack of space, which is directly related to how the patriarchy wants us to feel about ourselves and how much space we are allowed to be in and exist in as particularly as women, but all of us, all of us together, right? Like, and it's not just, again, it's not just women anymore. It's everyone that's trying to measure up to some kind of standard of like, what is perfection? Right. What is perfection? Because if I'm perfect, I'll be happy. I'll be happy if I'm perfect. Can I buy that? I'll buy perfection. I'll buy it right now. However much money it takes to get me to be perfect, Mm -hmm. just I just want to give you my money and then you stamp me with perfect, which is like, motherfuckers, Mm -hmm. it actually could be free to feel that way. It's free to feel that way. You just have to do the work on yourself. You have to do the work. It's like you can't pay, you can't hand anybody money to make that change happen internally. You can only have it happen from the inside out. Here's this person that is the size that we're all agreeing that looks amazing and her sister's giving her praise for being so thin. I'm curious and I'll never know, but like, how did that perfection, quote unquote, did it all go perfectly from there on out? Was everything perfect in her whole life? Were all her decisions great? Were all her relationships great? Did everything work out perfectly just because she looked that certain way? And the answer is no. Right, right, right. For better or for worse. (laughs) No pun intended. I want to do an episode about disordered eating because I just, I see it as such a time suck and a money suck. Totally. I think that you captured really well, like, the need for it to be seen as recovery, like addiction recovery. And, like, the ways that you put it where you say, like, I'm in disordered eating recovery, which I think is, like, an ongoing battle that people – it never goes away. No, it never goes away. And that is a bummer. And it's a bummer to, like, kind of go, like, ugh. Yeah. But at the same time, it's way less shameful and scary when you sort of accepted, like, this is something that I deal with, like, and that's okay. For me, it's like, well, how do I invest my time and energy not in, like, how skinny am I or how what can I lose? How do I invest my time and energy and sort of shifting that into what really is the wellness aspect of it, which is, like, how do I like myself? What parts of me do I like? What, what do I like that's connected to exercise? Like, I read something the other day that was, like, if you knew that your body would never change from what it is right now, what workout would you do? And I was like, oh, I would do all the ones that I like doing right now, which is pretty good sign that I'm on the right track. I started surfing. I know. I saw that. I don't know what surfing's going to do, but I get to be in the water and I showed up my partner. I did better than them. And that's really all that matters. <laughs> it looks cool as hell. <laughs> In the end, I just want to win. In the end, yes. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about this. I really- You're welcome. You're just so smart. And I felt like I was at your TED Talk and I really loved it. Uh, uh, can you can you tell our audience um, where they can find you? Yes. Um, on the internet. On the internets. I'm on Twitter, but I don't get on there a lot. Who needs it? It's real rough up in there. Yeah. It is a disaster. But I'm on Instagram at Stephanie Beatriz. You can also find me on your TV. Yes. And sometimes in the movie theaters, um, you'll be able to see me play Mirabelle this fall. 
I'm so excited as a huge Disney fan. I can't wait. Yeah. Thank you so much to that anonymous emailer and listener who sparked this entire episode. I can't thank you enough. I would never have thought of it without you. Dr. Austin made a heartfelt and important plea for more funding for mental health care in general and toward research and prevention of eating disorders in general. If you or someone you know is struggling, please reach out to Striped, which I'll link to in the description. Like me and Steph, you are not alone. Please take care of yourselves. I love you all.